Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Hello, everyone. This is episode 50, if you could believe it. I'm Cam Connor, along with my son, Chris. And what a perfect episode to celebrate our 50th one, because we're going to talk about that goal. And I think you said if you ever wrote a book, you would consider you'd be call, calling it that goal. Something uh, like I was going to call oh, it yeah. Cam <laughs> Who. Cam Who. Yeah. So finally, how many years has it been? 40 years? Yeah, it's been you know, over 40 43 years. more or less. And so Montreal Canadiens and Toronto Maple Leafs are finally meeting in the playoffs. A lot of attention has come your way for the goal that you scored. Memorable one for your career, that's for sure. And it seems like a lot of fans remember this. And there's a lot of fans that don't remember it. But uh, the clip is going around. So this episode... We're going to talk all about that goal, what led up to it, your thinking, the reception after, that Dave Hodge interview. We're going to talk all about it. You've talked about it before in different episodes, but when you have 50, we don't assume that everyone's listened to everything. So this one will be a comprehensive episode, and I'm sure we'll cover topics that haven't been covered before. I have some good questions for you, Dad. Uh, so that's what this episode will be about. But every year we always make sure to get your Stanley Cup predictions. Usually we ask before the playoffs begin, but uh, there's just been a few games already. So who do you predict to win the Cup this year? Well, I think that this is going to be the hardest year to try to predict who's going to win the Stanley Cup. You know, with COVID... I am pretty familiar with the Canadian teams, but, you know, the other divisions, you know, it's just a, I'm just rolling the dice because I just haven't seen them enough and they haven't been in Edmonton and I haven't got to watch them that much. And so, you know, I I always like Tampa Bay and, and they're doing well against Florida. I like Vegas. They're doing well. You know, Toronto Maple Leafs, it's not an accident that they didn't finish, you know, that they finished first in the Canadian division. They got some talent and uh, you just can't, you know, you just can't exchange goals for goals. If uh, Oilers take on Toronto, man, that could go either way. I mean, that it's just a coin flip. And then you get Carolina, who is doing extremely well in the playoffs. So having said everything like, I am going to go with, I'm going to go with, and you know, I love the Oilers, but I'm going to say, like Toronto, to me, the goalie isn't quite like a flurry for Vegas, but those guys can stop puck. They got good D, so so I'm going to, um, see, you can tell, I, already, I just don't know who to go because there's two or three teams in my mind that could win it, as I've already said. And you have a pretty good record. Yeah, yeah, so far. I'm, so, so far, that's the pressure is on. Okay, so I'm going to go for, I'm going to go for Carolina. That's who wow. I'm going to say. I know, I know. I was leaning towards Toronto, but the question mark is the goalie, and he's 
you know, there's, the goalies have stopped the puck this year, but there's just something that's pulling me to Carolina. And I have to ask, uh, just because you have ties to both cities, who are you predicting for Winnipeg, where you grew up, against uh, Edmonton, where you played, and now you live? On paper, the Oilers should beat them. I think I heard last night they beat them seven out of nine games. The Oilers beat the Winnipeg Jets seven out of nine. So when you dominate like that, it's it's that's where if Winnipeg wins, it's going to be upset in capital letters. It's just nobody's calling for that. So you know they they played last night Winnipeg in Edmonton. Winnipeg won four to one with two empty net goals. Smith didn't play bad, so in my mind, I think that uh, Oilers will for sure beat the Jets. But, you know, if you're from Winnipeg, you might doubt that. Or you Maybe you agree with me, but I'm going to have to say the Oilers, and then I think the Oilers will take on the winner of uh, Toronto and Montreal series. And, and that was going to be my next question. What's your prediction for that? Well, Toronto, it's not an accident they fin- finished first. They've got whew, some firepower that can score goals. If Montreal plays the same way that they did all season – they're going to have to adjust. When you take on a skating team like Toronto, you can't play Toronto's game. You have to be bumping and grinding. And that's what the Winnipeg Jets did last night. They got in the order's way. They crowded them. They took away their skating room. And it kind of changed things up. And it wasn't necessarily a really exciting game. But the Jets accomplished what they wanted. They won that first game. And so that's what Montreal will have to do to Toronto to win. They're going to have to get in their way. They're going to have to bump them, grind them, lean on them. And having said that, if you get, I believe the goalie's name is Allen and the other is Price. Price is back and he plays the way he did a number of years ago. It's the equivalent of putting a piece of plywood in net when, when Price is on his game. You're not beating that guy. And so if he rises, if Allen's in net, and he's played pretty good this year, if he's stopping that puck, and Montreal Canadiens are doing everything they're supposed to do and not play Toronto's game, then they've got a chance. But if, in fact, you know, it's so easy to play a hockey game because when I played, it was rough freaking hockey, I'm telling you. And especially playoffs, it was really a grinding, bumping, hitting. But as you watch a lot of these games in today's NHL, it's kind of like, you don't hit me and I don't hit you. Those games are so easy to play as a hockey player. So Montreal cannot come in and play that kind of hockey against Toronto. So they, they would lose. So I am going to predict Toronto to win. I do hope Montreal wins. But if I'm just being honest, I think Toronto is just too strong to stop. But that's the only way Montreal can beat them is to get in their way. Because of COVID, none of the Canadian teams will have any fans in the stands, except they've announced that Montreal, starting Game 6, will have, I think, 2,500 fans. So that would be nice to see. Well, it will be. And they're also talking, you know, some of the other teams like the Oilers are talking about getting people in the stands. I mean, I'm not a health official, and I don't know what the doctors know. But in my mind... You know, you get a seat arena, say like Edmonton, that holds 18,000 plus. I mean, you look at the Bell Center, that's 20 or 22,000. If you put in, you know, a quarter 
of, of the people that, that, you know, instead of a full house, put in a quarter of the amount and spread them out. Will that allow safety and, and, and following COVID protocols and if they all wear their mask? I mean, there's going to have to be some talks within the, with the doctors. This is, this is the time of year where the fans love their hockey, especially in person. The players love the energy the fans bring. I think you got to do whatever safest. And if, if the medical minds think that, you know what, it's still too early, well, then that's the right answer. So before we get into uh, talking about your, your big goal, we just want to remind everyone that you're on Twitter at CamConnorNHL. You're on Facebook and Instagram. You're also on Cameo if anyone wants a shout out. And we'd love to hear feedback or questions or podcast ideas at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. Okay, Dad, so this goal that you scored, why don't we talk about, I guess, so people know or probably know that you got drafted in the first round, you were number five, and you chose to go to the WHA for a couple of reasons, but I think the number one reason was money. They offered you a bit more money. Yeah, like uh, a lot more money. You know, back when I played, there was a lot, and I'm using the word a lot, that's accurate, crooked agents that uh, stole from the players' bank accounts. I gave my attorney, you know, at the age 19, what do I know, and I didn't have anybody helping me. I gave them power of attorney, and they're supposed to send me statements each month, and they never did. And it took years later that I found out that uh, there was a guy who was associated with my agent, and he was a doctor. He had my annuities going into his bank account, and I found that out years later, so he had to pay me back. I didn't put it in the paper. I didn't bring up his name, and I kind of regret it. When you're dishonest and you get caught, I think you should pay a price, but at the time, I just let it go, and I, I feel bad, so... So, yep, that's what it was. It was money. But I also was lied to by my agent. You know, today I'm a lot wiser than I was at 19. And I remember saying to my agent, you know, this world hockey is kind of questionable. And they've offered me all this money. It was a five-year contract back then. And I was told that it was the largest contract ever paid to a junior hockey player coming out of Canada at that time. But I don't know if that's accurate or not. because. Nobody, back in those days, we did not know what anybody's salary was. It wasn't in the paper. But that's what I was told. And I know they gave me 200000 to sign my contract. Montreal offered me 150000 to sign it and a three-year contract. Phoenix Roadrunners, they offered me a five-year contract. It worked out to about $850,000 over five years. Plus, they paid my lawyer fees for five years. And I remember asking my agent, I said, well, you know, they could offer me $5 million, but if they fold, it doesn't matter how much they were going to pay me. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. Your contract's guaranteed. I said, well, if it's guaranteed, I'd be a fool not to take it. So I took it. And, you know, as I find out later that uh, my contract wasn't guaranteed, the only thing guaranteed was that their five years of uh, lawyer fees were guaranteed. So, you know, I, I was lied to. Today, I would say, oh, that's perfect. Show me in the contract where it says that. 
you know, you, you learn lessons in life. And uh, I, I've learned many, but it's unfortunate that it seems these lessons always cost you money to learn. And as I always say, I've learned so many hard lessons that my next life, I'm going to be so smart. So, so I know some people have wondered, you say that going to the WHA is one of your biggest regrets. But how did you know that you would even make the team in Montreal and maybe it actually was a good decision because you would just be playing for the farm team? Well, you know, it, it really, that didn't enter my thoughts because, again, I was on what is called a one-way contract. And there's two-way contracts and three-way contracts. And what a one-way contract is, is that if I got sent to their farm team, that I still got paid the same money as I would have got playing in Montreal. So it wouldn't have affected me dollars and cents wise. You know, I, I, I was told that if I signed with the Canadians by Scotty Bowman, he told me, you're going to be on the Fleurs line. Now, I was 19 and naive. And even I knew that once you sign a contract, they do whatever they want to do with you. So that didn't fool me. Yeah. So the, you know, the farm team, I kind of expected to have to go there for, a short period of time but if I went there and they kept me down there for two to three years then I would have said what a big mistake coming here and for the people that are you know not my age the WHA that Chris and I talk about it was called the World Hockey Association and it had teams in Canada and United States and it was the equivalent of the National Hockey League they, they lasted I'm gonna say seven years and uh, they paid the same amount of money, if not a little bit more, to the hockey players to get them to come out of the wherever they were playing to get them into the World Hockey. And I think the, the World Hockey's ultimate goal was to be a strong uh, franchises and eventually, you know, to join the National Hockey League, kind of like the American Football League and the National Football League, you know, to merge. I think that was their goal. And so it was a very viable league. If I got sent to the fire farm team, I probably didn't want to go down there. But, you know, knowing what I know now, the other, because Montreal had five first round draft choices uh, that year, and there was only 18 teams. And the other four guys um, that got drafted in the first round by Montreal Canadiens, they all got sent to the farm team, um, which was Mario Trombley and Doug Riseborough and Rick Chartres. Um, and I forget who was number 18, the draft choice. So, you know, I would have been in good company. And from what I was told, this hockey team in the American League, that, that was the Canadians farm team. I think it was St. John's. No, was it wasn't St. John's. Right it just skipped my mind. Yeah. I, I, I would know. It just that skipped my mind. But they were strong enough that they could have beat some of the NHL teams, uh, it was said. So I, I would have... Uh, I would have been, you know, with with good hockey players down there, and we would. I think they won the championship at the American Hockey League level for at least a couple of years in a row. You know, so that didn't enter, Chris. I would be sent to the fire team. I would hope that I wouldn't be, but you know, I was in good company if I was sent down. So then you played four years in the WHA, and you returned to the Montreal Canadiens after the league folded, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so, do you remember? What was the start of the year like for you? It was very tough because I played for a team called Houston Arrows in the WHA. Signed a seven-year contract, no cut, no trade. And so they folded after two years. 
And the Winnipeg Jets were, that's where I'm from and my wife is from. They bought all the Houston Aero assets, including the players. And so the Winnipeg Jets, they were telling me that I had to come to Winnipeg. And I said, I don't have to go to Winnipeg. I had a no cut, no trade. And by me leaving Houston to go to Winnipeg, that went against the contract. So I was a free agent. And they were fighting that and saying that wasn't true. And so they offered me fifteen or 20000 a year, a five-year contract. Montreal Canadiens offered me a five-year contract. And the Winnipeg Jets, who were still in the World Hockey Association, they offered $20,000, i am going to say, a year more than the Montreal Canadiens. And anyways, I ended up, you know, going to Montreal. Montreal told me in the, you know, that summer, they said, well, where do you train after the season's over in Houston? I said, I go back to Winnipeg. And they said, well, we don't want you going back there because, you know, there's going to be some legal challenges because the World Hockey says that you're still part of the World Hockey. I was told by the Canadians that they that I could travel for two months in Europe, wherever I wanted to go, and they would pay the bills for the wife and I. And, you know, as, as nice as that sounds, you know, I took it so serious going to the NHL and going to Montreal Canadiens because I knew what a strong, strong hockey team that I was going to, and I had to do everything in my power to make that team. And so I turned them down. I didn't go back to Winnipeg that summer. I worked out in Houston, and I know that I didn't have access to much ice time in the summer. And plus, you know, by working out in Houston, I had a Mike's hockey stick in the world hockey was an inch and three-quarter curve. It was a big curve. And I could shoot with it. I learned how to handle the puck. And, you know, I shoot left, but I played right wing. And so you have to learn how to take a backhand pass on your backhand. And I only had about an inch or two at the heel of my stick. And that's where I had to grab my backhand. And I got to admit, sometimes around the net, when I went to lift the backhand puck into the net, didn't get it in the right spot, so I wasn't able to lift it. And it cost me a few goals. So all summer, I used that inch and three-quarter hockey stick. I went to Montreal Canadiens camp. And because of this legal challenge, I couldn't skate with the Canadians for a while. I, uh, I think I could practice, but I couldn't play any exhibition games, and I and I certainly couldn't dress for any league games if I was still had this legal challenge about where I should be playing. I know that when finally the Canadians said, "Okay, it's, you've been cleared, you can play in the NHL. World Hockey's got no legs to stand and, on." And do you know what month that was? Around? You know, I can't, Chris. Like you said, it's like 40 years ago, yeah. more. But that was during the hockey season. That was in the training yeah. camp. Oh, okay. Right before things started. Yeah. So that put me at a little bit of a disadvantage. When I started practicing, I still used that inch and three-quarter stick. Nobody told me, hey, you better switch that up. So it was like a day or two before the first exhibition game that I was going to be participating in. They said, well, you know, and I knew it. I had to. Because NHL, they only allowed you up to a maximum half-inch curve. And when you've used an inch and three-quarters, I look at a half-inch curve on my blade of my stick, it looked like a straight hockey stick to me. I said, oh, my God. And so that was really one of my biggest adjustments was learning how to handle a puck with this, almost a straight stick. And so I do know 
I remember one exhibition game, I got in behind the Boston Bruins defense. I got a breakaway pass. It, it hit, I took it on my backhand and it bounced off and into the corner. Like, it was embarrassing. But it took a while to learn how to use that curve. After you use it two, three, four months, it's starting to, you know, to feel the way it should feel when you get a puck on the stick. So do you remember who welcomed you to the team? Was there someone that stood out? of the players that was overly welcoming well honest to god you know i do remember the one thing i do remember like all the guys came up and introduced themselves but i didn't know who was who other than a few of the name guys but the other guys they all came up and introduced themselves and i i remember i've always had high blood pressure but it wasn't really brought to the forefront until i went to montreal's training camp and they they, they give you a bunch of tests, and one of them was, you know, they, the doctor measures, like, like your blood pressure. And so the doctor took my blood pressure, and he said, wow, this, this is really high. He said, come back in half hour. So I come back in half hour, and he said, this is still really, really high. He said, are you just excited to be here with all these famous Montreal Canadiens? And I said, Maybe. And so I came back again, and so he said, you're just too young to put you on blood pressure pills. So I went my whole career without blood pressure pills, even though my blood pressure was sky high. And so obviously today I am on blood pressure pills and uh, feel good. My blood pressure is manageable now. But, yeah, they all came up, Chris. Again, Montreal had a great team, uh, great, great bunch of guys. Honest to God, they were. They were a powerhouse team, and uh, I'll never forget them. And was Scotty Bowman welcoming at first? <laughs> no. Never? No, Scotty. I, the first day I walked in, and, you know, I, I weighed 205 pounds, and it, was, it would fluctuate between 200 and 205. And I walked in the dressing room, and, you know, I met Bowman when I was 19 because Montreal flew me into into Montreal to take a look at the city when they were trying to woo me to sign with them instead of going to World Hockey. And I remember Bowman took me to Montreal Expo baseball game and he went out for, my mom and dad came and we went out with Sam Pollock for supper that night and Sam was a wonderful, wonderful man. So Bowman saw me when I was 19. And so when I walked into the dressing room, Bowman looks at me and he just said, is this as big as you are? Like, that's the exact words. And I felt like saying, no, I'm actually bigger, right? Like, what am I supposed to say? That's what he said to me. So I guess because, you know, I got a lot of penalty minutes and I could fight, and he thought maybe I was a 210 or 215, you know. Like, I, I don't know what he thought. But well, that's, do you think he held a grudge because you didn't sign with him? Well, you know what? I, 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 I would hope that he didn't because uh, I – when Bowman was he told me that he'd get me when he phoned me, you know, when he found out I was going to war hockey, he said he'd get me two hundred thousand more, just stay on the phone. And I told him I couldn't. He said, "Well, you told me you didn't sign with Phoenix." I said, "Well, I didn't." He said, "Well, then you can." I said, "But Scotty, I, I appreciate you getting me two hundred thousand more, but I gave him my word." And he said, "That doesn't matter." He said, "Legally, you didn't sign." Now, you know. I mean, how could he be mad at me when you honor your word? Like, that's a lot of people don't. Some people do. I'm a man of my word. I always have been. 
and I was very proud at 19 years old. I could have made 200 grand more, um, but I stuck to my word. But Bowman treated me pretty nasty. And, you know, some of the things when I look back at training camp, for example, I remember we were in Buffalo, and there was an exhibition game, and I come out of my hotel room, and I'm walking down the hallway, and Bowman's coming towards me in the hallway. And even if you don't like somebody, you know, you say hello. So, I mean, I said hello, hello, Scotty. And he looked me in the eye, and then he looked at the ceiling, and then he walked right past me looking at the ceiling of the hallway without saying hello to me. Just walked by me, and I remember saying, man, I guess he doesn't like me. And so he was pretty nasty nasty to me all year. He never once the whole year ever gave me a pat on the back or said anything positive. And I know, and I've said it before, and, and I think most people, you know, you do a lot better with positive reinforcement than negative. And so that was just, you know, he won Stanley Cups and, you know, maybe other guys appreciated him. But I know when I was there, he didn't really get on like the Cornways or the Lemaires or the Robinsons or the Savards or any of the superstars, he would take it out on the foot soldiers. And I was one of the foot soldiers. So all his negativity came towards me and Rick Chartra and Pierre LaRouche. He was just nasty. He'd have this scowl on his face every time he talked to me. And uh, he'd ignore me. And so it just wasn't a, you know, a good environment. And uh, I might just add, after about two weeks having Bowman because the coach I had the year before in the world hockey, his name was Bill Deneen and Bill was one of the finest human beings that you'll ever, ever meet. He was so good to everybody and uh, what a wonderful man. And he gave me a lot of confidence and I had, I made the all-star team in the war hockey and scored 35 goals in 220 something penalty minutes. And I had a real good year when I first went to Houston with Bill. And so after one practice where Bowman was all over me and rude to me, like, I just can't play with somebody like that. I, I'll do my best, but I just, you're not bringing the best out of me by doing that. So there was a guy named Toll Blake who won many Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens. And um, I knew he was in the hospital. I never met the gentleman. But some reason after practice, I would ride the stationary bike and push the weights, and then when I was all done, I was feeling pretty bad about the way I was being treated. But of course, I'm not going to the press about it, so I just kept it to myself. And I went to the hospital where Toad Blake was, and I found out where what room he was in, and I remember I walked into the room, and Toad Blake, I walk in, and, and I said, Toad, you don't know me, but my name is Cam Connor. And he said, no, I know who you are, Cam. He said, you're a real good hockey player. I remember you, sure. And so I, I felt pretty good. He gave me a compliment that Bowman hadn't yet. So we started talking, and it was really nice talking to him. And uh, I said to him, i got to ask you, I said, do you have to be a prick to coach? And told Blake, he said, you did. And I think that goes back to he was coaching, I believe, when there was only six teams in the National Hockey League. And you could treat the players any way you wanted because there was no world hockey. There was no rival league the players could go to. There was no hockey in Sweden or Finland or Russia. You had the National Hockey League or, or you went to their farm team in the American Hockey League. 
you had no options. And so that's just, I think, how they were. And so Bowman, I don't know if he patterned himself after Toe Blake or somebody else, but he was nasty. And uh, he couldn't coach today if he had the same attitude as, uh, you know, he, he just couldn't. So anyways, it, it, it was it was tough when I first got there and Bowman was not very nice to me. And other guys, they said he was the same way with them. So, yeah, I, I wasn't alone. And did you get much ice time, let's say, from September to January? No, I didn't get much ice time at all. Like, not at all. And, and, the, and the longer you stay out of the lineup and you don't dress for games, it's called game conditioning. So you can work as hard as you want on and off the ice, but if you're not getting in the games, your conditioning is not as good as the guys that are playing the game and pushing themselves in a game. And so my game conditioning um, just, you know, it was getting worse because I was hardly playing. And if I dressed, I didn't get much ice time for the most part. It, 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 it's, it was something I told myself that others had gone before me and that I wasn't anything special in the way that, like Pierre LaRouche had scored 50 goals already and he wasn't getting any ice time either. So I just said, okay, you know what? This team has won three Stanley Cups. They've only lost one player, and they added four more in the offseason. And my time will come. Now, maybe this year it's going to be a learning curve, sitting on the bench, sitting in the stands. But I was mentally prepared to do better the next year and the year after and just grow with this team. But it wasn't to be. So you at least got to practice with them. Right? Well, so yeah. did you learn anything from like Guy Lafleur yes. or any of the players during practice? With Montreal and the players, I haven't seen a guys work that hard in practice as a team. They every single the superstars gave it everything they had, every practice, and um, you know we bonded as players on and off the ice. We hung around together. In units of 15, 18 of us would go to beer together. And so there was a lot I learned um, about the word team. The older players in Montreal, they were leaders and they passed the torch to the younger players. And uh, going to Montreal, it was like, really, it was like going to hockey school um, with all those role models and just seeing the effort that they put in. And uh, they didn't bitch or moan when the practice got hard. Some of the other teams I played for, not many guys, but some would bitch and moan and say, you know, you've worked as hard enough and start, you know, moaning. But not Montreal. They all worked hard and it wasn't an accident that uh, the talent was brought out of them and that they won so many Stanley Cups. Do you remember who your assistant coaches were? And back then, how many were there? We had one whose name was Claude, Claude Riel. He had a shot at coaching the next year after I left. I think Bowman left, and he went to, I, I want to say, Buffalo. Um, so Claude Rell, he coached the team, but Claude didn't have, I don't think, I don't know if the word was the style or the presence behind the bench that it took. And so I believe he only lasted one year in that role. And when you're, I guess, you're not being benched, but you're not getting playing time, do you feel like... A member of the team still yeah and that's where the guys come in they didn't treat me any different when I scored my double overtime goal for Montreal against the Leafs when I scored that goal the players were so happy for me 
so, you know, I felt like a member of the team. I was there all season long. I traveled with the team. Every practice, I mean, I was at every practice. I was at every game. I was in the dressing room between periods. And the players treated me as an equal. And I always thought myself as an equal because other teams I played for when guys weren't dressing, you didn't think anything less of them. Yeah, I, I always felt like a member of the team for sure. And it was the guys, credit to the guys. They, they made me feel that way. And when you did get to play, was it because someone was injured? Was it because the team that you were playing was extra tough? What was the rationale, do you think? I think that, uh, you know, I think it's all the above, Chris. You know, I only got into 23 games. But I, I think that, uh, and I don't remember, but I know the 23 games I got in during the league, I didn't get a regular shift, right? I didn't get a regular shift. Yeah, quite often, if we're playing a tough team, I'd be dressing. If there was injuries, you know, I would dress, but maybe get a minimum amount of shifts. They would go with three lines instead of four lines. So then Montreal makes the playoffs, and I'm guessing this is like <laughs> the ninth or so time in a row they've made the playoffs. What, Chris, let me just say, it, I remember one of the one of the bonuses I was trying to get into my contract that year, and I told my agent, put in there that if we make the playoffs, you know, I'll get a certain amount of money. And the Canadians came back and said, we don't put in bonuses for making playoffs. You better damn well make the playoffs. <laughs> so so uh, the team makes the playoffs. And who was the first round opponent? Was it Toronto? Yes, it was Toronto Maple Leafs, correct. Okay, so then what was, I guess, the the tone going forward for the team going into the, the first round? And did you feel like you would have an opportunity to play? You know what? When you sit on in the stands for so often, if you get to dress and you don't get a lot of ice time, I had zero expectation. And sure enough, you know, the first games, two games against the Leafs were in Montreal. And uh, Toronto, they didn't have a skating team like Montreal Canadiens. We finished second in the league, only one point behind the New York Islanders. Uh, we we were a powerhouse and the defending Stanley Cup champ for the last three years. So when Toronto came, they're a more of a grinding, get in your face, clutch and grab, fight. That's the kind of game that they played. And they had some tough players that were aggressive. So Montreal, if I remember correctly, when they came into Toronto came into Montreal for the playoff, two playoff games, Montreal beat them five two, five one. The score doesn't really, it was a closer game than that. It was a rougher hockey and, and, you know, the Leafs would be running at them and taking the body and, you know, our guys would not take a step backwards. They just wouldn't. And so you're not going to intimidate the Montreal Canadiens. What I found out, Chris, if I could just jump ahead to the third and fourth game, which was in Montreal, what I found out later was that after the second game, Kenny Dryden went to Scotty Bowman. Now, Kenny had a lot of pull. You know, the way I was treating him would not do that to Kenny because Kenny, you know, he could do something about it. I couldn't. Kenny went and, and I found this out like a lot later, like, like a year later or something, that he went to Scotty Bowman and he said, we got to get Cam in the lineup. He said, this is 
This team, the Leafs, that's the kind of game he excels at. He can bump and grind and he can scrap and we need him in the lineup. And so he convinced Scotty Bowman to put me in the lineup, especially it seems that teams play tougher in their own ring too. Not all the teams, but that team. So, you know what? All of a sudden I find out game three, I'm dressing. I said, well, this is great. And how did, do you remember how you found that out? They don't tell you. You walk into the dressing room and if your sweater is hanging in your stall, then you're dressing. Too bad uh, no one took a picture of your face when you, when you yeah. saw that. I, I had to turn the sweater around, make sure they had my jersey <laughs> in the right spot. So you see your jersey up there, and then what happens at that point? The, does the does your te- do your teammates like no, actually acknowledge the fact that Yay Cam is no, playing? No, does anyone, they don't say anything. They're, they're getting ready for a playoff game, and uh, you know maybe. Do you some, remember what line? Like, do they tell you ahead of time? No, what the, line you'll no, be on? No, no, no. The lines pretty well stayed the same. You know what they will tell you is on the bench. So the first line, the starting, they'll tell you who's starting the game, okay? So you know to stay on the ice. They'll tell you who to start. And then the next line up, before they go out there, you know, the coach would say, okay, next line, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so. So you find out right on the bench, right? And it could be just the line you've always had. It could be switched around with somebody else on the line. So you find that out, uh, you know, while you're on the bench. So the first period happens is there you're sitting on the bench do you remember what the score is after the first period and we could check this out no i i I don't remember the score Uh, like i like i said i i just remembered that you know the longer i sat on that bench that my legs were getting stiff and do you get to like skate in between the the periods like yeah yeah what you know well so sometimes when there was a a commercial because it was hockey in canada I would just jump over the boards and try to skate real quick for that 30 seconds or a minute and then go back over, you know, back to the bench. You know, when the period's over, you got a couple minutes before the Zamboni is starting on the ice. So I would try to do something, you know, for a minute or two, but you can't stay on the ice uh, when the Zamboni comes off. You're in the dressing room listening to what's going on. So after three periods, what was the score? What was the tie at? Oh, man, you're testing. Why, why are you asking me these things? I'm going to say 3-3. Three, three. So the score was 3-3 three to three at the end of the third period. Do you remember at all if you felt like the game, like maybe Toronto should have, like they were playing better if you yeah. play, or Montreal was playing better at that point? Or were you guys lucky to be 3-3? Three, three? Well, one of the things I was told, and I don't remember who told me, but because Montreal had such a good skating team, when you go to the Montreal Forum, that ice was effortless. It was so hard, it was so easy to skate on that ice that we just blow by Toronto. I was told that when you went into Maple Leaf Gardens, where the Canadians went in, that they turned their ice plant down. So it was a little bit softer, which made it harder for the Canadians, and it didn't really affect you know, a team that wasn't skating at the Canadians level. So I was told that they turned the ice plant down. And so after three periods, you know, when you use four lines versus three lines, the team with four lines is going to be fresher going into the overtime. So I thought I could see, you know, a lot of the 
pucks come more towards the Montreal Canadiens and because they were just a little bit fresher because of the strategy their coach had versus, you know, the three lines that we went with. And the three lines is great because we had powerhouse three lines, you know, if you win within the three periods. But the longer it goes, that works against you now. And I'm just reading here that it said in the first period, the Leafs had the best scoring chances, including four in-close tries by Paul Gardner twice, Dave Hutchinson, and Rocky Saganiak. Yeah, that's right. And it says, plus a shot by Ian Turnbull that beat Canadian goalie Ken Dryden but bounced off the post. So were you playing in the first overtime or did you go nope. into the second? No, no. I was a cheerleader the first okay. overtime. So then second overtime comes and then... How did you know you were, like, what did Scotty Bowman or who, who, what happened? Well, I just, you know, you're sitting on the bench. Now, this is going into period five, and I've done everything that I possibly can to try to keep my legs, you know, as loose as possible. But I'm not expecting to play. I mean, I haven't played so far, which, you know, which I was disappointed and Bowman, I just looked down the bench. He's standing behind the bench, and he could tell that our players were tired. They were really yeah. tired, right? Yeah. So I seen them looking back and forth, back and forth, and I had this feeling, just I didn't know what was going through that head of his, and then he said, Cam, get on the ice. He said, he said don't overdo it. Don't overdo it. <laughs> and I'm just laughing to myself, you know. So I'm thinking, he doesn't have too much confidence in me. So that uh, was my only shift, and it came, I think, I don't know, I'll say halfway through the... Well, I think it said five minutes into the second second? overtime. Okay. So do you remember who was on the ice with you, even a couple players? Yeah, I do. Um, The only reason, I remember Doug Risebow passed me the puck, and I think it was Serge Savard who intercepted it or took it away from somebody in the center ice zone, and he gave it to Risebow. But, you know, I had never seen that overtime goal probably up until a year or two ago. I'd never saw it. And um, so when I have saw it, when I did see it, I noticed uh, Rick Chartra was on the line with us. It was Rick Chartra. And Rick hadn't been getting a lot of ice time either. And Doug Riseborough, who played regular, he, he was the centerman and, and I was playing right wing. And uh, that's, you know, that was the most comfortable I was, was playing right wing. But when I got to Montreal, I said, oh, I could play left or right. And I got a lot of, you know, when I did get the, the scrimmage and play, I, I was on the left side. And, and I know I'm much better on the right side. So anyways, I got to play right wing in the overtime period. How were your legs when you got on the ice? You know, I can honestly say, looking back, that they would have been a little bit tight. But I also know when your adrenaline's running, if I had to go up and down the ice, you know, on one shift, you know, the legs would have got tired real quick. It takes a while to uh, get the legs working properly. But I wasn't out there all that long. There was a face-off in the Leafs' end, and uh, I ended up coming out to the center ice area. And then in Montreal, that's one thing they teach you, you know, is when there's a turnover, so when the other team has the puck, well, you know, you're playing that way that the other team's got it. So you pick up your man, you start coming back to your own end. But the second we get the puck, 
you turn on a dime and start taking off in the other direction like immediately. Well, that's that practice just kicked in when there was a turnover. Soon as I saw that, man, I started going the other way. And the puck could go a lot faster than anybody can skate. Search of Art headed up to uh, Doug Riseborough. There was Dave Hutchison, who was a big, tough defenseman. He was a little more towards Doug Riseborough's side. Doug Riseborough, he headmans it to me. And I'm coming in on the goalie, you know, with Hutchison coming in from the other side. So I really did feel that with me trying to get towards the middle of the net that he was going to take my head off. But as it worked out, he didn't. So <laughs> I came in on my backhand. And because I had sat on that bench for so long and watched Paul Mateer, he was a goalie that wasn't very big. So he just didn't stand there and use his angles. He would charge out of the net. He'd skate out of the net. When you went to shoot the puck, you put your head down to watch the puck as you shoot it. And he would charge out of the net when you put your head down. So I saw that time and time. He's pretty consistent doing that. And so I just told myself, if I get my chance, I'm going to come in, put my head down, fake my shot. I know he's coming out of the net. And then I will just curl around and I should have an empty net by theory, right? Well, it played just like I saw in my mind. I came down, I had it on my backhand. I come in and I was trying to fake my backhand. So I, I put it on my backhand and knowing the palmetier was coming out and then I went to take it from my backhand to my forehand, but the momentum of the backhand to the forehand pushed the puck forward, I guess, and, and I lost it, and I didn't. It, it didn't end up on my forehand, but it went between Palmetier's legs, and uh, you know he didn't have a stick on the ice. If he had a stick on the ice, then you know the puck wouldn't have gone in. But he was trying to move because because I was moving away from him with the puck. So he opened his legs up, he took his stick off the ice, and the puck went right through his legs. So I was very grateful that I scored. And it wasn't the prettiest goal, and I've got abused. And, you know, you're going to talk about Dave Hodge yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. And so I got abused for that goal bad. Do you think that you understood how Palmatier played because you got to watch him from the bench and from the, the press box or the stands? No, or it, yeah, no. It was like, you know, when, when they played two games in Montreal, I can't say that I really took that in. I, I, I just don't recall, though. But I do know, sitting on that bench at ice level, um, I mean, I had a front row seat, and that's something that I picked up on. Uh, he did that every single time. He, and so I knew he's coming out of the net, and if I played my cards right, I should be able to give myself a pretty good scoring chance. Palmatier said a few things, but one of the things he said was, if that guy had shot the puck, there was no goal, but he lost it and it beat me. Do you think that's true? If you shot the puck, it wouldn't have gone in. Well, I knew he was coming out, so I'd never had any intention on shooting the puck. Maybe he would like me to do because he's taking the angle away. But I knew he's taking the angle away, so I would say, why would I want to shoot the puck? I never had any intentions of shooting it. And if I didn't lose the puck, I still would have scored. I really believe that because I would have had it from my back into my forehand, and he's laying on his back now. I would have had an empty net. I really believe, like, okay, I lost it. Yep. Went through his legs. Yep. He couldn't get it. Scored. Okay. But I had no intentions in shooting it. And if I didn't lose it, he wasn't quick enough to stay with me. I would have had an empty net. Guaranteed it. 
And I wonder if it was just like a slap shot that you scored, if it would be such a memorable goal. Oh, right. Well, that's There's true. There's a story behind it. Now. No, no, you're, you're right. Yeah, I've seen a few, but a lot of people are yeah. either discovering your goal or definitely have an opinion. And yeah. it's funny, the Toronto fans seem to have one side of it, and the Montreal fans have another side. So you you score, and do you remember your teammates must have been yeah. really excited for you? Yeah, you know, I knew it. And then, you know, when I got to see the replay, all the guys, you look at them, I think they were happy because we won the game. That's That's enough to... They put a smile on your face, but I, I do know that when I scored the goal, and I've said it before, I was I was really happy. I mean, I was. I know I know that they were happier for me because of what I went through all year long, and I didn't do any bitching and moaning, and I had my opportunities when the press asked me, why aren't I playing? You should be in the lineup. I could have said something and put some pressure to try to get into the lineup, but I kept my mouth shut. I never knocked anybody, including the coach. I kept everything that I'm saying today to myself, and I think the players appreciated that. And um, I was happy when anybody on our team scored and did well. There was no jealousy on my part. I can honestly say that. I was extremely happy for every one of my teammates, even if it came at my expense. They felt that, and I think when I got my 15 minutes of fame, I believe they, in turn, were happy for me. And did lots of people come from the woodwork, like, uh, to congratulate you, like people from high school and I'm sure family members? Well, like, you know, the people that had my phone number in Montreal, you know, they certainly reached out to me. Back in those days, there wasn't cell, there, there wasn't emails, right, and text messages, because that would have been even more. But, you know, it, it made me feel good that that I was able to contribute towards the step of winning the Stanley Cup again. And not to put a negative angle on this, but did Scotty Bowman congratulate you? <laughs> was he nice in that moment? No. He, not really? He, 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 this is kind of funny. Scotty didn't, uh, he didn't see who scored the goal. So I had all these guys on top of me. They dogpiled me. And uh, I know that Scotty... He didn't see, so he ran on the ice because he knew we won. And um, these guys, as they're coming off and coming off me, and then finally I'm laying on my back looking up, and Bowman was over top of me. And Scotty, I'll never forget it, he says, Who scored? Who scored? And I look up at him, and I said, I did. And he looks at me with his eyes wide open, and he goes, You did? Just like that, right? <laughs> and so I chuckled inside. Yeah, thanks for the confidence, coach. <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, that was the end. He never said a word to me, but I dressed the next night and I got a regular shift the next night. And you know what? It went to overtime again, Chris. And my confidence started to be there. And I know, I told myself, I'm playing regular. I am going to score an overtime goal again tonight. Watch. Just give me one chance. I'm going to get it. I was so confident that I was going to get that goal. Um, and as it worked out, they had a power play. Um, I wasn't on the power play. And Larry Robinson walked in, boom, scored. It was all over. But I, I felt I felt I was going to get that. Mm -hmm. so. and, and for another podcast, then you ended up getting food poisoning. And, oh, so the, yeah. and really, it's not for another podcast because you can check our archives about the food poisoning that took you out of the playoffs. So this is really just, it could be a movie, all the ups and downs and highs and lows and adversity for, for that year. I guess 
speaking about the Dave Hodge interview and the reason why we could bring it up is because it's on YouTube and people send that to you all the time people comment and if you haven't watched it just you could search on YouTube I'm sure it's on your Twitter as well so was that interview directly after the game because you're still in your equipment I think what right. it was, it was the next day oh, okay. because the game didn't get over. I mean, I didn't get out of uh, Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens until midnight, you know, even after that. And um, so it was the next day. Somebody came in the dress room and said, Cam, they'd like to interview you for Hockey Night in Canada. Well, you know what? I was so excited. I'd never been on Hockey Night in Canada before. It's my first year in the National Hockey League. I played four years in the World Hockey we never got that kind of publicity, so I was excited for this. You know, so they take me into their little studio and you're dressed. And uh, this Dave Hodge guy, who I didn't know, he starts talking to me. And he was really kind of nasty in my interview. And, you know, I don't remember my answers, but I felt pretty good with my answers to his nasty questions. And then when the first interview was over he said oh uh, something went wrong here we didn't really get that we have to do it again I said yeah I bet to myself so we did the interview again right there and then a second interview and um, you know he was so nasty if you haven't seen that interview I don't think you could find another interview and if you do I'd love to see it where a commentator for a hockey night in Canada, which went all across Canada, was as negative and nasty to anybody. I've never seen anything like this. So it was around a three-minute interview, and I counted 13 times he cut me up in that interview. 13. And, um, you know, there's no reason for that. I got my family watching. I've got you know, friends and people that I know in Montreal and other people. And it, like, I don't know why he had to be so negative. Like, okay, you know, he kept calling me the seldom used, the seldom used. He overdid that word. And uh, he said, I guess you're going to try to tell me that, you know, you meant to score that. And then, you know, he said I could learn from others how to do a post-game interview. Like, it was just nasty. Like, he didn't have to... Be, he controls the mic and he controls everything so i had to just bite my tongue and put up with it not say anything and, and uh i didn't and so was I, that something you forgot about until youtube brought it up or was it something that you've always kind well of again i had never seen it for 25 30 years whatever it was and i knew he was pretty nasty to me but when i got to look at it and then rewind it and look at it again it just really hit home how how rude he was to me and like like i should have probably just ended the and just walked out like why would i put up with that but i did um but and i i don't know if anybody ever said anything to him you know from hockey night in canada like oh that's pretty negative like why did you act that way you know obviously he was a leaf fan he didn't know i was his, going to ask was he a leaf he fan? had to be because it <laughs> yeah. was in toronto yeah he had to be a leaf fan and, um, you know, he, he didn't really know the history of Montreal Canadiens because you just know you don't play regular with Montreal. The other guys have told me, you're going to be sitting on the bench for a while if you even get in the lineup. They had to do it. So, 
you know, he didn't know that. He just cut me up. And so he didn't take into consideration that this team had won the cup three years in a row and they only lost one player. So, you know, it kind of made me feel bad when I actually got to review it many, many years later. And I often wondered why he felt that he had to have that kind of an interview with me. And I'm guessing he never apologized. Oh, hell no. He, not at all. I won't say anything negative. Again, it, 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 well, there's all kind of journalists out there, yeah, right? And yep. I'm guessing since he's still, I think he's still working, that maybe he learned from that too. Yeah. So tonight is the, the big game, and do you have a prediction for tonight's game? I know you have a prediction for the series, but... I think, you know what, last night, the we talked earlier, the Oilers took on the Winnipeg Jets. Somebody would ask me before the game, who's going to win? You know, I know the Jets... They would have done their best, and, but I, 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 I would have said that the Oilers would win. Yes, I do want to see Montreal Canadiens win, but if they beat them, it's going to be an upset. I'm going to have to say, that doesn't mean I'm not a Montreal Canadiens fan. You're asking me what I really think. I mean, the honest truth is that I think Toronto's going to beat them. And, um, but there's some factors there. Like I said, if the goalies play, you know, at a high, high level, and maybe Toronto's goalie's a little bit weaker, and, you know, their chances are taken away from, there's, there's like, Winnipeg Jets did to the Oilers. That's a typical example of what you need to do against a good skating team. And you always say playoff hockey, things reset in a way. They right? do, like they do. It's a brand, brand they new do. start, in a sense. They do. So, you know what, I, I'll, I'll just because you put me on the spot, I'll say, you know, Toronto will win tonight because it's in Toronto. Um, but we'll find out uh, tomorrow whether I'm right or not. And, and again, I love the Canadians. And so we'll wrap this up with, I guess, one last question. Do you think that this goal, this double overtime goal, is your legacy, like your your hockey highlight? I guess it is, but it isn't, you know, isn't, I mean, I'm proud, okay, the only thing is, I wish I would have scored a nicer looking goal, like I do. Like I even, even after I, the puck went through Palmatier's legs, I see that I'm kind of falling on the ice. But the, I look, my right foot hit Palmatier's right foot, so that kind of made me lose my balance. Um, it, it was not a pretty looking goal, and like I said, you know, Palmatier cut me up with the, you know, for scoring that goal. Dave Hodge cut me up quite a bit for scoring that goal. So I've got negative publicity from Toronto people for scoring that goal. And, and you know, maybe had I scored a real nice-looking goal, nobody would have made fun of me. And but. think of all the players who did not score a double overtime yeah, playoff yeah, goal. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm happy. You know, is it my legacy? I guess it is. Okay. There you go, everyone. Until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam.